Hello and welcome to the 102nd episode of the From Alpha to Omega podcast. Today is Monday the 16th of September 2019 and I'm your host Tom O'Brien. This week we welcome back Mike McNair to the show. We caught up recently at the CPGB Communist University in Goldsmiths in London and sat down to talk about the history of the UK's role in the EU, Brexit and why he considers himself an ex-trot. Part two of the conversation is a Patreon-only episode, so if it tickles your fancy, you can check it out by joining the Patreon gang gang for only $5 a month, which works out at only $1 an episode. Patrons get access to all the old Patreon-only bonus episodes, the right to vote on the next reading group series, and other cool stuff too. When we reach 100 patrons, we'll be producing a second Patreon-only podcast every month. If you'd like to comment on the show, please do so on the YouTube channel, and make sure to like, subscribe, and share. You can also join me on Facebook or Twitter too. Okay, to the interview. There's a discontinuity, there's a loss of historical knowledge. And part of that is the deliberate operations of the British state to degrade education uh, by teaching kids show-and-tell stuff about Roman Britain and Anglo-Saxon England in primary school and all the way up to age 12 and then the next secondary school they get 1914 to 1945 so the thousand years goes missing. <laughs> <laughs> but also the 1914 to 45 stuff is... Uh, Charlie hockey sticks and flag waving, is flag it? Flag waving stuff yeah. and anti-communism. But uh, so the sort of um, the actual history, but it's also the case in terms of the left that there's this caesura between the guys who were around in the seventies. Quite a lot of whom have got stuck and just repeat like stuff. Sorry, Gov, scratch the record, scratch the yeah. record. Yeah. Um, and the, the younger generation who know fucking nothing as often. My, my, my own daughters joined the Labour Party around the yeah. Corbyn surge and yeah. then sort of ringing me up. What do you think about X? What do you think about Y? Yeah, yeah, so yeah. I was, Jesus, I haven't been in the Labour Party. I'm not in the Labour I didn't think it was worthwhile to yeah, yeah. give the Labour bureaucracy 25 quid to expel me from the Labour Party. <laughs> 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 uh, yeah. But uh, just the... Uh, Wouldn't pay for the paper for the tribunal to kick out... You know, they'd yeah. actually make a loss on your... <laughs> Dear me. So, but they, don't, they would just have um, uh, auto-what's-itted me. Uh, okay, uh, would they? Have, would they have, yeah, here I am. I've been writing uh, for The Weekly Worker under my own name for... That's true. Um, that was a fatal mistake, Mike. <laughs> however long. Um, in point of fact, I was. I was... Um, Personally excluded from the Labour Party by uh, Andrew Smith, who was the MP for Oxford East, but at that time he wasn't the MP for Oxford East, he okay. was the branch secretary of um, Cali Branch Labour Party okay. uh, in the 1976, 76, yeah, yeah. Why was that? You were involved in some, like, like group? Are you a democratic socialist or a revolutionary socialist? Okay. But, he asked uh, you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that was enough. Uh, you go. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and then I got back in and 
after the split in the after the constituency had been split, I got back in in Oxford West, and then first time I went to a district committee because they had the Oxford West constituency, of the East constituency, yeah. the district committee to control the councillors, yeah. theory control to, to do the council campaign. And the first time I got delegated from Oxford West to the district committee, and um, uh, he says to me, "What are you doing here?" <laughs> I'm a member of the party. How do you get in? <laughs> and like, is it just his so word is enough, or is it the fact that you said something is uh, He technically was a trot. Yeah, he was yeah. straightforward. He knew I was a trot. Yeah, and yeah. In the mid 1970s, it was bloody obvious. Are you still a trot? I would say I'm an ex-trot now. <laughs> <laughs> what does that mean? Uh, when I was a trot, I was an orthodox trot, and I believed the whole, not the whole lot of, but I believed in. The permanent revolution and the transitional program, yeah. and the um, political revolution against the uh, Soviet bureaucracy. Okay, so I still think that the world revolution and the need for the fourth, build the fourth international from a, an international first and downwards, and all of that stuff. Okay, I still think that socialism in one country is wrong. Mm. I still think that the idea of the monolithic party is wrong Um, I still think that the idea of the People's Front the uh, broad democratic alliance that is wrong so in that sense I'm still a trot and in a sense when um, we got denounced in Stop the War Coalition for being Trotskyite wreckers because we wanted to say hey you can oppose war on Iran without having to prettify the Iranian regime Um, we wear that with a badge of pride but at the same time, the Trotskyists, Trotskyists, we have them in, come turn up to this thing, and they yeah, denounce yeah. us for not believing in the transitional program and the permanent revolution. It's hard to read your book and come away thinking you're still a trot, though. I'm not. It's like every three or four pages, or probably less, somebody, somebody goes, oh, that's a sick burn, you know. <laughs> it's basically, they're going, oh, fuck, <laughs> he's laying into the trots again here. It's like... Yeah, a lot of people who are trots read it and think it's a great book and still remain trots. It's a very strange phenomenon. Yeah, I don't see that you couldn't in the sense that... Uh, I, I, uh, like, it's so the, withering. The, 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 the permanent revolution, I think, is... It's not that the permanent revolution... It's not that Trotsky was wrong on permanent revolution in 1905-1906. It seems yeah. to me that's a entirely defensible position is essentially saying you're not going to get the peasantry on side. And because you're not going to get the peasantry on side, you're going to hold power. If you take power, you're actually dependent on the victory of the uh, German Revolution. And I think that's just true. It's straightforward. But then, of course, afterwards, in 1930, he rewrote it in order to come up with the idea, fit in with the idea that the you could get from the permanent revolution you could get a worker state which was something like the Soviet Union and indeed to go along with this suggestion which I think Lenin was just wrong but Lenin made in his last days that the Soviet Union could perhaps overtake economically overtake the West yeah. it's just wrong, it didn't work mm-hmm. and um, the Trotskyists then used that as an excuse for backing every all and sundry uh, 
left nationalist regimes in the third world. That they can motor on and take over. Which becomes delusive. It's not very international. Uh, it, it, you, know, you, you lose all sense of the, the proletariat as an international class, as the class perspective. And then, of course, now we've got the guys who argue permanent revolution means you have to mobilise people on wherever the hell, or the transitional method means you mobilise people on the basis of wherever the hell they're at. Yeah. And that will grow over into the socialist revolution. It's bloody obvious it doesn't work. Yeah, um, I don't know if you saw... There was a case in uh, the IMF came into into Ireland there after the crisis and they wanted to privatise the water. And there's two truck groups in Ireland, the People Before Profit and the Socialist, Socialist Party. Party. Yeah, they're yeah. SWB and Socialist Party. Yeah. yeah, and they uh, between the two of them, they managed to stop the privatisation of water. Like it's an amazing success. What happened to their support? Nothing. Yeah. Nothing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's just like it's like that's probably one of the best achievements by some truck groups in Europe in yeah. the last 40 actual policy change not yeah. to privatise water and yeah, like yeah. absolutely nothing uh, wrong I, I, I personally moved the successful resolution on lesbian gay rights at Labour Party conference and that the organising work behind that Labour campaign for lesbian and gay rights that was in '87, but the organising campaign in the 1980s was all done basically by the trots with a little bit of help from some of the Euro communists. Okay, what really made the difference was not us, but lesbians and gay support the miners, and then the consequence was that the miners union, which had been steadfast opponents of gay rights resolutions, had changed sides, and all the unions. The unions generally change sides with one, but if we hadn't done that work as trans, it wouldn't have passed. Point being, yes, and it didn't. Uh, the, the fact that people will line up with you on some question like lesbian gay rights or abortion or uh, the SWP got enormous support for the anti-war movement, which they cyber squatted, yeah. stopped the war, as it were. Massive, uh, millions of people, but did the SWP? Nothing. Uh, that was a, like, again amazing, them, like, like amazing numbers. Because it's uh, uh, the reality is people, in essence, this whole thing was a way of tricking. The uh, imagine you could trick working class into taking power. Uh, yeah, exactly. Hide from them the fact this is you know, this is a bunch of trots in the room. Okay, it can be a bunch of trots in the room. People are willing to go along with you, but not to the point of giving you political power. Your yeah, support, political support yeah. outside of the single issue, like yeah, yeah, no, because I'm new to this game. Like uh, I'm just some weirdo who read Capital in like 2009 in my room. You know, I've never yeah. been in any organisation, so it's like I remember going to I stop the war it. once, and I, I got the impression that somebody told me I don't know how I found out that it was like a front for was it SWP and. Uh, but it was the SWP and the, and the official party, the official communist party. Okay, yeah. Um, but I remember like feeling kind of like it was a bit underhand as somebody was coming to it like totally naive to what the thing was. I kind of remember thinking like, I don't know, it just felt mm. kind of like somebody's trying to pull a fast one on me or something. Yeah, some there's a lot of hiding stuff. Isn't there? That? And that's uh, not what it's I've just been doing, I've been writing on the uh, Kowski debate in the US and um, 
I was trying to find out what Vivek Jibba's political background is. It's not bleeding obvious. You know, here's this guy, he uh, graduated from BA in 1987 and then he did graduated PhD in 1999. And, okay, people can take a fair while with the PhD. I'm an example, actually, yeah. because I started the PhD in uh, 85 and graduated, 86 and graduated in 92. Uh, but, and in a sense, you can look at my own history and say, if you look at my academic history and nothing but my academic history, you're going to find here's this bloke who's mysteriously matriculated at Oxford University in 1972 and graduated in uh, <laughs> 1982. Yeah. Um, the explanation of which is that I was doing political activism and then I was in the car plant and then I was doing political activism in London and then I went back and finished my degree. Jesus. I started in 1972 and I finished in 1981 and then I didn't actually graduate until 1982 because it was convenient to yeah. take the first degree together with the Masters. But in terms of my web presence, it's not actually terribly difficult to find out that Mike McNair was a left activist okay, yeah, in the yeah, 1970s, yeah, yeah. whereas it's really difficult to find out what Vivek Chiba was doing between uh, uh, 1987 and whenever it was. I don't know when he started. I assume he started the PhD somewhere around 93 or 94. Um, he, 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 when I, I bought his book, which is about... Um, the book of his PhD, which is okay. about uh, comparing India and South Korea in relation to modernisation. It's quite an interesting book, yeah. uh, mainly on... It's an actual book, or is it just you got the PhD printed? It's an actual it's book. book. Okay, yeah. yeah. So he worked on the book after the PhD. And he's got acknowledgements to his comrades in solidarity. So from from the print text, we can tell that Vivek Chibber was in solidarity in the... Uh, US solidarity in the... But it's just interesting this thing. It's the same with quite a lot of people, the, 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 the left academics, that unless you know where the hell this person is coming from, uh, it's really quite hard to find out what the hell they do. Chipper stuff is like, it's like market socialism. Is that what he's into now? Uh, seems to be the latest version. The, the book about um, post, against post-colonialism is sort of uh, Brenner, Marxist's work, political Marxism. The modernisation book, he, he was supervised by Eric Olin. Okay, yeah. Um, it's one of those things where it's, it's very, it's technically sound stuff that we compare uh, the political structure of uh, Indian capitalism, the political structure of Korean capitalism, and uh, it, what is it that makes Korean capitalism uh, fly under Indian capitalism not? And there are two things missing in this narrative, one of which is that the United States enforced in 1945-46 land reform and wiped out the Korean landlord class. Did it? I didn't know uh, that. And distributed the land to the peasantry. They did the same thing at the same time in Taiwan and in Japan. Wow. Uh, on the grounds that the landlord class had been at the back of the... It was a wide, quite widespread belief that the landlord class had been at the back of fascism. Uh, that, that Would it have been a, a land reform would radically alter the situation? 
would it would it have been something to do with how close they were to the communists by by land? Yeah, well, that's the other side of it. Is the United States after the Korean War, not before the Korean War, but after the Korean War, the United States permitted um, very extensive protectionism and planning state yeah. active state operations in, uh, in South Korea, South Korea yeah. uh, so that. The, 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 the US as a political actor, as geo, the US as a geopolitical actor is missing from, uh, as far as I can see, I think, uh, from uh, 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 Jim's account of why okay. Korea modernised and uh, That's interesting. India, didn't, India tried to modernise but didn't succeed in modernising. I'm not, I, I mean, I think it's probably true that you needed to overthrow the landlord class and the uh, religious the, the, uh, in, in, uh, in Japan of course the uh, Buddhist monastic operations in, they had the reformation in 1867 dissolution of the monastery and certain liquidation of the Buddhist temples desessorization of Buddhist assets uh-huh. uh, and then the consequence was that they were able to invest massively in industry uh, without okay. borrowing money, so they didn't hold sculptures in a school. No, no more gold sculptures of Buddha and stuff like that. Exactly, exactly. They desessorized all the uh, assets of the uh, liquidated. Same way as Henry VIII liquidated the assets of the English Church, um, but Henry, of course, then distributed it out to the uh, gentry. Was that? Uh, it's, it's partly to the gentry, but it's also to a considerable extent. Quite a lot of it was uh, sold off on um, in small parcels in free and common sockage, as of the Manor of Greenwich, uh, which was okay, the yeah. standard way of giving out small parcels of land. So it's, it's a mixture of big parcels given out to the aristocracy and the gentry, uh, small parcels given out to other people. Anyhow. A percentage of the land was, was owned by the Catholic Church then, also being. 20 or 20 percent, was it? It's something that older, yeah. It's still, it's it's still like 10 percent, isn't it? There's a significant bit of land surface which is owned by Church of England. It's still just, it's, it's 10 percent, I think, isn't it? Something like that. It's like them and the MOD, about 25 percent of the land. Uh, Austin Cambridge Colleges, so St John's College notoriously has resisted registration of their land titles because they don't want. It to become public knowledge what oh, proportion of the English land surface <laughs> like what's the rumour I don't know it's known that they own land in every county in Jesus Christ uh, but uh, mafia that's where mafia yeah yeah anyhow that's that it's, it's interesting when you were talking there earlier about how they skip a thousand years of English history when you study history in Ireland like when I was studying, I didn't do it for my leaving search, but I, I read, I used to read them because I was bored, I was in a boarding school, I'd been studying, I could study or I could read somebody's history book and I do that instead. And there was, in, in Irish history, you learn English history intensely up until about 1914. <laughs> and then when the Irish Revolution <laughs> starts, they don't teach any Irish history or any English history. And then they will teach a small bit about World War II, but they skip all of the juicy stuff in Irish history. You can learn all you want about Wolf Tone or 1798, but you cannot learn about 1921 or 1916. So it's like the opposite. It's like literally nearly the polar opposite of what English history is taught. 
Right, and Brexit. I watched a video of yours that you did in 2016 at the Communist Party University. After the, it was called, I think, after the Brexit the vote. That's yeah. the one. I watched it. I watched it about a year ago, and then I watched it again there last night and today. Okay, well, let's start historically. Do you want to explain the role that Britain has played within the EU and how that evolved? Okay, I still think this is true, in essence, yeah. The United States promoted the EU on the basis that it would be an economic arm of NATO for the purpose of organising the European continent. Uh, but it was also... Uh, independently, the, uh, uh, the six, uh, wanted the, the, the political actors who promoted the EU in particular in the six, uh, wanted a European state, which was originally proposed by Parvis. What year? Well, it, it was proposed by that trend, in fact, as the, 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 uh, the, the European, that um, it wasn't just Harvest, but uh, the other guys in Die Glocke. I've written on this in critique, but the, the names are not currently yeah. escaping me. Um, Max Beer. Ah, sorry, it's, it's, it's a trend round Parvis, and Parvis after yeah. the, um, Immediately after the First World War and shortly before his death, formed a front together with a man called Stinnis, who was a major industrialist, German industrialist, to promote European Union. So this is, the, 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 the idea is already in circulation. And indeed, Trotsky proposed a socialist United States of Europe in, as a, a line in the, sec- in the First World War, uh, which Lenin denounced him for as being this is unrealistic, the European states can't possibly get together, they're bound to fight. So anyhow, there is this trend which is there and as a thin trickle down from leftist advocacy and rightist advocacy of United, on the basis that, um, dear me... Is it a reaction to the formation of the United States? It's a reaction to the United, growth of the United States power, yes. Yeah. It's for most clear, the guys who wrote about the Kautsky trend in relation to imperialism was to write about continental imperialism as something reactionary and British imperialism as something which reacted to the development of continental imperialism. I suppose, what the fuck? <laughs> Tell that to the Irish. <laughs> Tell that to the Irish. Tell that to the Indians. <laughs> you know etc. Yeah. Uh, and Mosh actually made the point there's this weird thing that Marx refers in capital to the three kinds of colonisation the um, exploitation colonies like going and looting India and the plantation colonies like the West Indies where you've relocated some bit of yeah. industrial agriculture uh, which in my opinion is copied from Venice and Genoa, Venice's plantation colonies on Crete and Cyprus and Genoa's plantation colonies on the Canaries and yeah, yeah. stuff like that. Um, but in any case, and the third class is, Marx calls it colonies properly so called, and he means northeastern United States, New England colonies, which he characterises as really objectionable, genocidal and so on and so forth. Kansky reduces the classes of colonies to two, one of which is the exploitation colonies, uh, the, the looting colonies, and the other is he calls work colonies, which means 
these settler colonialism. Yeah. Uh, much less, uh, Parvos is savage about the settler colonial uh, yeah. regime, but Kowski did soft on settler colonialism. It's a sort of, where the fuck is, where's he getting this stuff from? Uh, it's the context in which he's writing, but, but it's also, he's weak in that respect. Uh, yeah. But in any case, Beer was a specialist on British imperialism. Uh, Parvis only started doing this sort of line when he moved to Constantinople and he became uh, 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 essentially a Turkish nationalist and he persuaded the Turks to enter the First World War on the German side on the basis that they would get out from under. They were under uh, British and French British and French uh, creditors creditors control regime like the uh, Greeks now. Yeah, I'm F intervention only it was called, I can't remember what it was called, creditors control regime. He says, if, if the Germans win the war, you can get out from under this creditors control regime. He took that decision almost certainly in ignorance of the SPD majority. He was a hardline leftist. Yeah. He was an influence on Trotsky on permanent revolution, but he was also a man who would... Uh, he wrote the first polemics before Kowski against Bernstein, along with Luxembourg. Um, he wrote a brilliant set of arguments about the agrarian problem, which uh, points up the extent to which the agrarian problems in Germany reflected the world market in food, rather than particular issues about the German economy okay, and yeah, yeah. and so on. So he was a real leftist and um, Comrade Hainish, he's just remembering another of these names, was otherwise known as Parvulus because he was Parvus's follower. Uh, Max Beer, as I said, was a specialist in um, British imperialism and then, oh dear, uh, there was another guy who was also a specialist in British and American imperialism and in the, the, the Pacific developments. And these guys, fairly clearly in 1914, they were a large chunk of the left. Yeah. And in 1914, they came to the conclusion that uh, the best way forward for the working class was for Germany to win the war. Good one, lads. In any case, they were, the, 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 the Parvus was an uh, enthusiast for the European Union. There was this tradition running. What was their theory for the, why, why did they think Germany would be so good for the working class versus if you random come other? the expression of organised capitalism. I don't know, I don't, I don't think so. Um, e, Paul Hutton, not Hutton, Will Hutton, yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, there's this sort of line of opinion that continental capitalism is more advanced and more uh, trading and friendly and more planning This is Will Hutton, who's head of Hereford. In, yeah, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. He was ex. Was he government minister or was he a journalist? He was journalist and journalist, economics journalist. Yeah, Guardian. So and uh, it wasn't just Hutton. It's also um, dear me. Before they became fans of China. Hobsbawm was a fan. Okay, Eric Hobsbawm, uh, yeah. There was a whole through the 1980s, but this was actually a line which had been Hilferdings. Okay. This yeah. Hilferding yeah. wrote this famous book on finance capital, but yeah. his actual politics was to think that uh, a Central European German capitalism was more advanced and uh, 
Uh, and since you look at it, you see, as of 1900, Germany had universal male suffrage. England had 5%, 6% of the population had the vote. Um, the, the very small size of the Labour vote and then post-1918, when they give the man, male population the vote, the Labour vote shoots up. Yeah. But that's... Uh, England had very limited suffrage, but also England had uh, the representation of English liberalism as being a, a, a um, form of aristocratic, early modern aristocratic polity. It's like Venice. Well, it's, it's true it's like Venice, but at the same time, the whole representation of this, it was what was unrealistic about it was. It, it might well be the case that if the Germans had won the First World War, it would have been... Because quite a lot of what the Germans did did actually become normal capitalist practice. Like what? Cartels, nationalisation of the railways, of the infrastructure, and so on and so on. Do you know the economist... PhDs. Um, yeah, a Marxist economist. Um, he's kind of Marxian, but uh, Michael Hudson... Do you know oh, what yeah, yeah, yeah. He's always talking about how the German banks took a different model of lending than the British banks, whereby they took like a an equity share yeah, versus. Is, uh, Hillel Tiktin has written about this because it's a really ex- it's, it's an interesting point. But the fact is, actually, if you look at the German banking model. And the Austrian and German and continental banking model more generally than the English arms length and American arms length. The reality is English country banks around 1800 had the German model, model. and American banks in the 19th century had the German model. The ascendancy of finance capital does not consist in well, Elfeding and Lenin thought this German model was the ascendancy. That's the result of early capitalism. Interesting. This is, this is Hillel. Yeah, yeah. Rather than, but in any case, the point being simply that there is in this, in the formation of the EU, there is this element of we want a, 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 an American, a European state which can stand up against the American state. But the other side of it is. The Americans wanted a mechanism whereby they could have uh, free trade within Europe as long as they could buy firms within Europe, and in which the concessions made to the working class, which there were massive concessions made to the working class after 1945, could be regulated on a European scale. And so it's, it's, it is part of I say just as frontline states, Korea as a frontline state yeah. was protected, so the EU was part of the mechanism by which the United States regulated its control. Okay, so the Brits refused to go in instantly, in, initially, because the British position has always been to keep Europe as much divided as possible, but at the same time to have as much free trade in Europe as possible. So the, then uh, the Americans... The Brits not going in was a problem for the Americans already in the time of the creation of the of the Cold Steel community, because it, it, there was a real danger of the uh, dominance of the um, idea of a European state. So the Americans wanted the Brits into Europe, even when all their even <laughs> all their soldiers on on the land of Europe, even with that 
They were still afraid. They were still afraid of it becoming because, of course, yeah, soldiers, yeah, okay, but uh, it, 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 you need some mechanism to paralyse the decision-making bodies of the EU, and yeah. so the. 56, 57, the Brits fucked up over Syria's. And uh, the US administration says, right, you have to apply for membership of the EU. It's an instruction which is issued by the State Department to the UK. De Gaulle, sensibly enough, said, actually, if the Americans came, if the Brits come into Europe, they will come in as an agency for the Americans. Because the Brits agreed with the Americans to hand over to them in 19, summer 1940, okay, they tried to squirm out from under with canes at Bretton Woods and it didn't work, and then they tried to squirm out from under again in uh, uh, series by doing an independent initiative alongside with the French and the Israelis, uh, and the Americans said, fuck this, you're not pursuing an independent foreign policy, you're going to go into Europe, and de Gaulle vetoed it, and uh, their matter stood until May 68. May 68, de Gaulle went to Germany to try and get uncorrupted troops to intervene against the mutineers and the strikers, and the American and Brit and... Uh, what do you mean? The high command of... You mean non-French troops? French troops, because he had French troops in Germany. How come? Well, because they're part of the... The, the French troops, the, the Army of the Rhine was not just... Um, uh, British troops and American troops. It was British troops and American troops. Yeah, French sorry. Yeah, because it was were, the same in uh, Berlin, wasn't it? It was the same were, thing. Yeah, there, yeah. Were French troops, there were French troops there. So the idea was you can pull out the French troops who were not corrupted by contact with the strikers and um, uh, uh, re-establish. And the uh, NATO High Command said, no, sorry, we can't, won't allow you to do that. And so de Gaulle now had to make a deal. And he made a deal with the PCF. But the upshot of that is that de Gaulle then fell and Pompidou who was the American's man came in and uh, he wasn't fully the American's man but he was closer to the Americans came in and part of the whole process he lifted the veto on British membership in the EU what did so the British then came in and their job was to make the EU broad and shallow and not narrow and deep to do that they exercised the veto and use the veto, but in order to be able to do that, they had to have a public stance that the British public were generally suspicious of the European Union. So you had the press constantly generating uh, Euroscepticism, which then provided political backing for Britain exercising the veto in the Council of Ministers. What did the, what did the, you said the, the Gaulle did a deal with the PCF, the French Communist Party. What did they, what did they get? Major, major wages, concessions on wages, pensions, hours, etc., etc. So big, big economic concessions post-1968. To this day, they, they still have a lot of them, don't they? Oh, yeah. The guy who we had talking to us about France last night, he retired at 60. <laughs> I'm going to hit 65 this September, and uh, I'm not due to retire until, until 68. <laughs> Was it... What's floated there this week was 75? 75, God help us, yeah, yeah. Um, There's a way back when Cowley, they had an organisation called the Vehicle Builders Union, which is a company union, which was later absorbed into the TNGWU, and uh, some people I knew were looking for paper in the 
TG offices and they found the old Vehicle Builders Union minutes book. Yes. Stuff about making representations to the management about people losing earnings on piecework because of people dropping dead on the track. Sort of, they're not concerned about the fact that people are working themselves to death and dropping dead on the track. It's just that it's causing loss of earnings for other people. <laughs> anyway, that's sorry. pretty rough. I've, um, my other, I think the, there's something about the retiring age stuff. We've been sold it as where it's against age discrimination. But the reality is it's more like... 1740s, you've got this 1730s, 1740s precedent of conspiracy to refuse to work more than 16 hours a day to the great loss and damage of their employers. Anyhow, so Brexit, so then, you're, you're sort of... The, the, the presentation which I did, we thought then, and I think we were, we were just wrong, we thought that this was all going to be a scam. Uh, that at the end of the day it would turn out to be no Brexit or Bruno. Brexit in name only, but <laughs> it doesn't look like it, basically because... This is what I wanted to ask you, like, I have my own theory about it, but like, why do you think it's a, it's a real thing and it's not the facade that people thought it was? Trump won the presidential election and then the other thing was step two I got I got a quote to something you said in that vi- in that video. I got a quote to something you said about Trump here. Where did I write it down? He said, "Trump, if he if he wins election, he said you had no fucking idea what he was going to do because <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's notorious liar." Yeah, I know. <laughs> it was just but it clear quite shortly afterwards two things. One of which was he was actually going to go for a protectionist term. And the second is that there was going to be no serious or effective resistance to him from any of the other centres of power in the US state. And in particular, although there is resistance to him over the relations with China stuff, and there is resistance to him over the relations with Iran stuff, we are not getting a peep out of the democratic leadership, or let alone the corporate corporate world congressional leadership, about the anti-EU Brexiteer stuff. So that it seems to be fairly clear we're in the midst of a turn in the same way as the turn which took place in the late 70s when they abandoned the right social democracy and went for Hayek and neoliberalism and so on and so forth. The US is turning towards, I'm not going to call it fascism, it's too. Um, it is authoritarianism, it's right-wing nationalist authoritarianism with populist language and protectionism. And in all of those things, it's like fascism. It's not like fascism in the sense that both fascist Germany went from Italian fascism, Mussolini was an ultra-left before 1914. And uh, National Socialism presented itself as explicitly as socialistic. Italian fascism actually also presented itself as socialistic, corporatist. A. B. Uh, there were all these militias built out of the veterans' associations, both in Italy and in Germany. Yeah. And they aren't there. There are, okay, there are gangsters like the guys who beat up. Uh, Owen Jones. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but we are not facing 
black shirts or brown shirts or what's it? Oh, blue shirts. In Ireland, it was the blue shirts, I think. Yeah, yeah they had their own ones. Shirt movements, uh, or even um, League of Empire loyalists, or yeah. um, various other. But the reason why we aren't is because the left is so fucking weak. Well, that's what I was going to say to you. Like, uh, the, 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 they don't have to be attacked. But you don't. But they do have are moving otherwise into the territory of the. Uh, so we have that split far right. We have that same split to like socialist communist is not even a mention really yet. Yeah. it's kind of social democratism and this kind of vague right fashy this is nearly you know yeah. standing or looking but it's, not acting it's not uh, it's, it's it, not required fascism is not it, it, there isn't a, there isn't a defeated revolution to deal with yeah, yeah. There isn't actually, there isn't a, a, a mass of demobilised soldiers, which was the social, the core, the hard core was the, the demobilised soldiers. The hard core of the Hitler movement was the Stahlhelm, and the, the Stahlhelm was an organisation created by the high, German high command out of demobilised soldiers to fight the communists in 1918, but of course there were, 1919, but of course there were a whole load of uh, demobilised ex-soldiers on the communist side as well, so that the, the, the and the same is true of uh, of Italy as well. So that uh, that that isn't there, but it's also the case that there isn't the need to pose as left as you know, you think of Hitler posing left, but actually Hitler did pose left. Well, one of the things that people who are into the modern monetary theory don't like to ever say is that Hitler essentially did modern monetary theory. Yeah. That's how he got the. Yeah. That's how he just devastated. Well, he, he was able to do it because of the amount of money because the United States was willing to lend, U.S. capital was willing to lend in large amounts of money. But okay, U.S. capital was willing to lend in large amounts of money, partly because it screwed over the working class, and therefore it was going to be relatively profitable. But also, yes, because he was doing this Keynesian, like capitalism, capitalist position, and of course Keynes. Uh, 1936 introduction to yeah, the big book. Yeah, then, uh, uh, oh, Jesus, it's gone. Yeah, the theory of general employment. General, general theory. Yeah, yes. general 1936 theory. introduction to the general theory is yeah. addressed to Germany and says, My book would work best when applied by a totalitarian regime in a closed economy. Ah, <laughs> uh, He was also the head of the. He was the head of the. Uh, President of the British Eugenics Society as well. Keynes? Yeah. Surprise, surprise. Well, Marx is a bit of a eugenicist as well. Isn't oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Those people were. It's pretty bad. I think, yeah, so. But, but in any case, the point being simply, we got this wrong because we thought that this was just a scam by Cameron to see off UKIP and also position himself to screw the Labour Party. Well, in a sense, the Tory party has gone on trying to use this to position themselves to screw the Labour Party by forcing them to choose. And if the Labour Party goes for Remain, then, hey, just like 2014-2015, the Labour Party went for, for to defeat the independence referendum, did the statesman-like thing, defeat the independence referendum, and the day after the referendum, Cameron puts the knife in and says, I'm going to run as an English nationalist. And yeah guarantee the SNP takes over. So, ideally, 
Jeremy Corbyn wouldn't have won the leadership of the Labour Party. Uh, whoever, one of the pygmies, what was they called, the uh, dwarves, uh, the, the various contenders, alternative contenders, would have done the responsible thing and campaigned for Remain. Remain would have won by 52 to 48%, and then the Tory party uh, would have uh, denounced the Labour Party for, uh, for uh, betraying its working class space. But it seems like it's something more than that, though. But it does seem as though it's more than that. But it's in essence, I, I, I think, in essence, what it comes down to is neoliberalism has run out of steam. The, there's a very neat book by, not book, article by um, All Souls Economist. Uh, it's called the, the Market Term. Have an offer. It's in one of the top flight economics journals, which okay. it would be. Yeah. He also wrote, I guess I said, he wrote a book called The First World War and Agrarian Interpretations of Ages Back. Yeah. And, uh, a brilliant recent critique of the Nobel Prize as being purely ideological, Nobel Prize yeah. for Economics as being purely ideological and no scientific value to it, whatever. In any case, he's, the point of the market turn is that the, the market turn was only plausible because soft money, large amounts of soft money from the 1980s made it possible to imagine replacing collective savings for old age in the form of tax and pensions with uh, privatised savings and similarly replacing collective house building with mortgage, freehold mortgage. Yeah. Uh, but what made that possible was uh, large amounts of money printing. And then the consequence of it, it winds up with, to, if this blows up in 2009, uh, 2008-9, the whole thing blows up. And the problem in essence, which is the same, we, we look at the, from the point of view, look at it from the point of view of the capitalist class, we, well, or from the point of view of the state rather, or from the point of view of the governments and people advising the state, younger generation can't buy houses. Basically, the money has run out for that, but also the um, keeping keep printing more money has inflated and inflated and inflated property values beyond the point at which they've got any relationship, whatever, to the way it's supposed to be. The six to seven to one ratio now. Yeah, it's impossible. It used to be, um, reg- it used to be regulated at three to one. And yeah. the average in London is, I think, seven times the average yeah. workers. But the... But the uh, Council houses which were sold off have not come onto the market as uh, uh, to buy but to rent. There's a movement back in essence, the old base of the Tory party, the petty rentier class, has got back a whole load of what it wants. So the housing question. The UK and health, the UK has got the NHS and there's a load of crap about how bad it is and so on and so forth. But the other side of the coin is that the uh, capitalist employers in the States are desperate to get some kind of socialised medicine, even if it's the feeble Obama stuff, because the costs to industry of rising. The uh, education system is pretty clearly fucked. The to and fro about A-levels and... Um, Goves crap and um, the railways 
everybody is openly talking about renationalisation. They should be also openly talking about renationalisation of the electricity supply because, of course, the national grid going down, that's just a symptom of the fact that the, it's privatized. the, the scheme of privatising it, it would be one thing to say we privatised it, broke up the grid, and then had it as uh, Manchester's electricity and uh, so on and so forth, but to privatise it on the basis that the grid is on one side and the supply companies, which are actually just speculative operators, the same with gas, and the same with water, all of this stuff, the whole thing of the uh, is falling down. So what the fuck are we going to do this is, about that? Uh, this is, uh, it, it, it. At the same time, if you have capitalists um, demonstrating, I have actually got a photograph of um, a bunch of business school students demonstrating with banners saying, markets rock, uh, and stuff like this. But if you had capitalists demonstrating, they'd be saying, no, return to the 70s. Left's out now. Uh, but the, that, that prohibition on that, that, that it's excluded, we are not going to go back to. There's a good reason for it as well, which is, in a sense, it's not just that it's, we don't want, we want the working class to be held down. It's also that the United States has relatively declined. Okay, David Edgerton, I think, rightly says the relative decline of the UK simply meant that other people caught up. But nonetheless, that is actually relative decline. And the same with the business of back investments in the years. Why we have bubbles is because people are trying to get an above average return. Because they, if they try and get an average return, they'll get a below average return. So they have to try and get an above average return, and yeah. then that inflates the bubble. But the, the, so the, 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 because the United States and the, U, U, the UK, of course, is finally not finally, but it sort of abandoned industrial policy under Thatcher and most of UK industry was obliged. There is some specialist stuff and so on and so forth. And the car industry, I take it, will be wiped out by no-deal Brexit, but it's probably going to go down anyhow because cars globally is in deep trouble. Uh, but the United States is in relative decline. Because it's in relative decline, it needs financialization. The British, when the British began to be in relative decline in the 1850s, they take off the caps, financial controls on financialization, and uh, massively reduce fraud, scope of fraud liability. Because the relative decline of British industry we need in order to pay for the food which because the country hasn't been able to feed itself in terms of population to food since 1800 okay, it's better than the Greeks who haven't been able to feed themselves since the 5th century BC but uh, we need the goddamn imports and in order to pay for the goddamn imports we need the ability to skim capital transfer transactions mm. on a world scale so, just the other day I was I was kind of going through my head I was doing this I, this argument myself it was like you know they do seem to be going for a no deal Brexit and I was thinking to myself I was of the opinion like you beforehand that 
it just didn't make any sense Brexit yeah. and, and I was looking at I picked up a book I have a book that, of Michael Roberts his latest book he did with Carcetti and on the uh, Rick Profit theory and yeah, I think it was a, an Argentinian guy in it I think Esteban de Michael yeah and he had you know different nations rate profits and he had like you know US, German, France and that and then you looked at the Britain and Britain's average rate of profit in in like 2010, I think, or with the graph went up until it was like 6%. And the others, Germany, and these ones were like 12, 13, or 14. You know, Britain is like the early advanced, the earlier adopter of capitalism. Mm. The, the, the stock of yeah. capital versus the, you know, your surplus value is, 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 is smaller. And I was like, I that mean, graph to me was like, that's why Brexit's happened now, because they're going to go for a renewed, harder, if you think about more deindustrialization, or yeah. yeah, or even even completely forget about like you listen to Reese Mogg and these guys, and they say, well, you know, the Australian beef is nice, and Argentinian beef, you know, we can get in a you know a third the price from these big old ranches, and so I think that it seems to me that they're going to just kind of go, we want to reduce the cost of living standards for the working class to to increase. The rate of exploitation. Does that sound like? I think that's probably right. Yeah, that it's uh, it's very difficult to tell because, of course, the the difficulty is they can't admit until they do it. If they're going to take away the agricultural subsidy regime, they can't admit it until they actually do it because it's their social base. But it um, was uh, Rhys Mogg's favourite economist, Patrick Minford. Have you heard of this guy? Yeah, yeah. And he came out and said, oh, well, we would have to get rid of the car industry, we'll have to get rid of agricultural industry. Yeah. Like, openly said it in the House of Commons. So I think, I'm wondering, like, is that it? And is that... It it certainly would make sense that it would be the next leg down. On this episode, you heard the theme tune, the order of the pharaonic jesters, and the night of the purple moon by Sun Ra and his orchestra. Thank you for listening, and please join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega. This show is a member of the Emancipation Network, a Marxist podcast and research collective. Make sure to check out our network's sister podcasts, General Intellect Unit and Swampside Chats. Thank you.